Hey, and welcome to City Hall Stories. I'm Jack English, and I think local governments have some of the most interesting stories that exist. Almost everything we do on a regular basis is affected by local government decisions, and this provides a massive opportunity for real change if we better understand how it works and how to affect it. I hope the incredible humans you hear from in this podcast inspire you to look closer at your own local government and become a part of the solution. Chief Brandon Del Pozo is one of the leading thinkers in policing. Following an extensive career with the NYPD, Chief Del Pozo moved north to lead the Burlington Police Department. While there, he oversaw a 50% reduction in opioid overdose deaths, pushed through key transparency initiatives and undertook multiple analyses on equity and use of force. Today we discuss where policing is headed, how to bridge the gap between PD and community, and despite common beliefs, why the NYPD is one of the most progressive policing agencies in the world. Please enjoy my conversation with Chief Brandon Del Pozo. Today we're talking with the first law enforcement official on the podcast, and for that we've got a a super special guest that I'm really excited about, Chief Brandon Del Pozo. So Chief, although you are a celebrity in public safety circles, for those listeners that may be less familiar with you, can you quickly run us through your career so far and the communities that you've served? Yeah, thanks. So it's a pleasure. And thanks for having me on. Uh, first, retired chief. So I'm Mr. Del Pozo, or in certain academic circles, maybe doctor. But I was born in Brooklyn in the mid-70s. My father was a Cuban immigrant. My mother was just, uh, you know, the nice Jewish girl that my grandmother always hoped she'd be. And grew up in the city. After college, I joined the New York City Police Department. I served 19 years. I commanded two police precincts, the 6th and the 50th in Manhattan and the Bronx, started in the late 90s, all of this as a street cop in Brooklyn and East Flatbush. So I did those 19 years in the NYPD, a bunch of assignments. I was in intelligence for two years in the Middle East, those two precinct commands, worked for the police commissioner and the chief of department. But then in 2015, I retired from the NYPD after about 19 years, and I went to be the chief of police in Burlington, Vermont, which is a small city, the biggest city in Vermont. And um, it's where Bernie Sanders lives, to give you a sense of the politics there. Did a lot of work with the opioid crisis when I was in Burlington. And then I resigned from policing in 2019, December, and uh, finished doing PhD within a few weeks. And I do research in policing, public safety, and public health, and addiction and overdose now at Brown. Given your background, this is a a question I'm personally interested in hearing your perspective on. What actually is success in policing based on? I know traditionally it may have been around more simple notions of crime and clearance rates, but as we've seen in the past couple of years, hard statistics don't always accurately reflect community sentiment toward public safety. So if you could maybe have a dashboard as police chief that you look at in the morning with three key indicators for you to judge the success of your work, of your department, what might those metrics be? You know, that's a great question. And I think that uh, one day soon, I want to write an interview guide for mayors and city councilors who want to appoint a chief of police. And and a question very similar to that, I think, Jack, will be in the interview guide. And it's what are the actual measures of success in policing and public safety? And you're right. For a while, we were satisfied with the murder rate the number of kilos cops were seizing, the number of guns they were seizing, the number of cases they were closing to arrest. But there was this promissory note that we were issuing, which is all of this will translate into like community resilience and public safety. And I think sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the things you do in certain cases to get those measures have their harms that have gone unmeasured or unacknowledged. Not always. I mean, listen, if you're taking a pattern shooter off the street, like it's good work. 
period. If you're making a lot of drug arrests, um, there's a lot of disruption you're creating and incarceration that's like, again, disrupting a, a community that you have to balance. And, and I think policing has come under criticism because it's never been asked to, or it's never taken on the mantle of really proactively measuring these things. So you want to do a few levels deeper, a dive into success in policing, which is um, sort of aligning it with public health, not as a buzzword or as a, you know, a way to neuter policing, but to really get to the heart of what matters, which is all things considered, not only in the moment, but downstream, not only in the instance at hand, but in the wider community, are you decreasing mortality? Are you decreasing injury and morbidity? Are you making communities feel palpably safer? Do people have fair open access to public spaces in ways where they feel safe using them at almost any hour, right? These are the measures. And so is that community safe? Is it resilient? Do people feel it? Can they act accordingly? That's you know also the measures of not only public safety, but public health. And, and we can get at a lot of those through enforcement and policing, but not just enforcement and policing as well, right? You need to really um, go a few steps further and measure, measure these indicators. And again, it's like health, it's safety, it's resilience, it's the feeling of safety. And then also looking at, to belabor this answer, also looking at the negative consequences of, of what you've done as well and, and mitigating those, right? I could talk more about that, but that's the sketch. Fantastic. And and you'd mentioned in your background, both working within a massive metropolitan area like New York City and, and also a, a smaller New England, I don't want to call it a town, a, a city of like Burlington. And I'm curious because I think a lot of folks forget that a, a police department is ultimately part of a city. And as a result, it isn't super clear where the locus of control always sits. So for your perspective, policing in such different environments, what is actually driving how policing is carried out on the ground level? Is it solely from you as the chief sitting upon a throne, making dictates around how we're going to treat certain incidents? Is it coming from elected officials? Is it coming from the Supreme Court? Where actually ultimately is is the decision-making power lying around policing? That's a great question as well. And I think that one of the problems in policing is that people like people assume that the chief is on his or her throne, just passing these edicts down from on high. And occasionally the, uh, you know, the Supreme Court puts a, a right or left guardrail in place as to what you can do. But in reality, police are hired by mayors and city managers and their budgets are set by city councils and they're part of the executive branch of government. And I think one of the big gaps in police innovation and reform stems from treating police as if they were some separate, weird fourth branch of government and giving mayors and city managers a pass on supervising and overseeing police departments. And part of that comes from policing being culturally its own its own thing. Part of that comes from the fact that policing has always been its own cultural domain and mayors and and city managers were afraid of taking the reins of a police department. And the police chief was like, oh, listen, you don't want crime on your hands. I'll handle it. Leave it to me. That's produced some pretty bad results. I think we need to, we need to empower executives and government to take control of supervising police departments. I mean, you if 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 the snow doesn't get plowed, the mayor is raked over the coals for it, right? If garbage doesn't get collected in a big city, the mayor gets raked over the coals for it. In charge of and, and policing is as well. I think that part of reform means 
understanding that that police agencies account to the executives in city government. And we don't quite have that yet. So I know we're, we're jumping all over the place, but I'm just kind of following my train of thought. And mm-hmm. uh, this question comes from, so we had Bridget Brennan, the special narcotics prosecutor for the city of New York on the podcast. And a large part of that conversation was discussing the opioid crisis and, and specifically fentanyl. And you touched on that around your work up in Burlington. And I'm curious, you're not going to find a community further from the Southern border than Burlington, really. Would you mind talking through just how impactful the past five, 10 years have been from an opioid crisis perspective and and really how maybe fentanyl has even changed the game beyond that? Yeah, we, when I was chief with a real relentless effort, and I do mean relentless to throw everything we had at the opioid crisis in terms of science and medicine and evidence-based responses for two years running 2018 and 2019, we were able to get a 50% reduction in fatal overdoses in Burlington and everywhere else in Vermont, they went up 20%. So it was a 70% spread between our county and the other counties. That was real and it was sustained, but it took everything. I left policing, the coronavirus epidemic uh, took hold. I just read today, in fact, that for the first time ever, you know, overdoses in Vermont for by record are over 200 you know, it's a small state, so it's all a matter of scale. But the problem not only is all of all the gains in Burlington been lost, but statewide things have just gotten much worse and they've had the biggest increase in the US. Um, that's all fentanyl. That is an opaqueness to the drug market, right? Like the thing about Oxy and Vicodin, Percocet, is when they're produced by pharmaceutical companies, they cause terrible addiction, but you know exactly what's in the pill. There's no risk of, of, of a wrong dose because you know how many milligrams are in there. And so you were getting overdose counts in the US at the time that we thought was a crisis, 40,000 we thought was a crisis, 50,000 we thought was a crisis. With fentanyl, which is a very, very profitable for, for cartels, fentanyl is produced um, synthetically in factories. There's no poppy fields in Afghanistan involved. There's no farmers. There's no long supply chain. It's very compact when it comes to smuggling. Yet its potency has resulted in 104,000 overdose deaths in the last 12-month period that we've measured it. And that is the product of a very opaque, illicit drug market that is fueled by an extremely potent drug that people who are addicted to opioids don't know how to safely dose. And here we are. Did I hear that right? 104,000 overdose deaths in the past 12 months? Yeah. Every few months, the CDC releases its 12-month running total. So that's not a calendar year. I think that might've been through last October wow. 31st, but it's 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 104,000 overdose deaths in the US in that 12-month period. When I took over as chief of Burlington in the fall of 2015, we were at about 50,000 and we thought it was an unheralded crisis. It was reducing U.S. life expectancy. It's over double that now with, with I mean, no signs I see of dropping. And it's, it's because fentanyl is illicit, it's opaque, and it can't be safely dosed. So what's the, what's the off-ramp here? I mean, how do we actually sufficiently address this problem? Is it an educational issue among drug consumers and buyers? Is it going south of the border and, and trying to stem production directly? What's the answer? I mean, part of it is definitely, I don't want to discount an enforcement approach because there is room for that. I mean, ultimately, this is an industrial, industrially produced synthetic product that's getting made just south of our borders with chemicals you know, brought in from mostly from China. So there's no farmers, there's no crops to spray, there's no replacing 
poppies with other crops. It really is an industrial policy problem in that regard. And then there are big cartels that know that they're killing these people and say, this is great. It's great for my profit. They need to go to jail. Ultimately, though, empowering, and, and, and we could talk for, I know we have limited time here, addiction to opioids is extraordinarily powerful. It changes your body. It changes your mind. Things that you swore as a pre-addicted person you would never do, quitting your job, ignoring your kids, selling your body, stealing, make perfect sense when you're suffering from addiction. They're logical and your body's impelling you to do them. So it's not like, hey, I'll just have the willpower to gut it. The biggest failure in treatment is abstinence-based treatment and detoxification. It just exposes you to greater overdose. When you detoxify in jail from opioid addiction, opioid use disorder, up to 40 times over exposes you to the risk of fatal overdose. So knowing that those are the limits to that approach, it really is about two things. Number one, the medicines, methadone, suboxone, buprenorphine, they work. There's meta-analyses, systematic reviews, case studies, insurance records, no matter how you cut it, getting people on the medications, which are weaker, less potent form of opioids that allow them to live a normal life, because it's a much less potent form of, of, of the drug that staves off withdrawal, that works over the course of years to keep you alive and return you to normal function. We need to go long on making those available and encouraging people to use them and destigmatizing them. And then number two, to get people there alive, it's not just naloxone. Like people need to know it's fentanyl that I have, and they need to be empowered to safely dose fentanyl if they're suffering from addiction. And it's not about the Russian roulette of wondering what's in the package of not knowing. It's about like, okay, this is fentanyl. And my dealer consistently supplies me with this fentanyl. And I know it's fentanyl. And here's how I'm going to conservatively dose it. That's another thing too. And, and I'm being... I wouldn't have been so practical as a young NYPD cop, but watching the death toll, this is this will work. And this is the, I mean, nothing compares to this. Roadway deaths, homicides, HIV, all sorts of, of accidental death and unintentional death, like nothing compares to 104,000. And you could add them all up and they don't, you don't get to 104,000. So yeah. to maybe ask a somewhat philosophical question as a result of this, have conditions changed materially within the United States that's led to an uptick in illicit drug use? Is, is it the industrialization that have caused an uptick in deaths of despair? Once we attack fentanyl, is another drug just going to pop up and take its place? What's actually at the deepest level driving so many people to feel that they need to self-medicate rather than maybe look for more holistic solutions to what they're facing? Yeah. So we're seeing an uptick in the, the presence of stimulants like methamphetamine in a lot of communities. And there are a lot more poly substance use going on, but nothing is quite as addictive and deadly as, as fentanyl. Stimulant use, we don't have effective treatments for it. We don't have an easy way to reverse stimulant overdoses or acute stimulant intoxication if someone's high on, on methamphetamines or cocaine or crack. But at the same time, they just don't cause the overdoses, the fatal overdoses that opioids do. The problem with opioids is they make you feel fantastic, right? They are about euphoria, freedom from worry, having no cares in the world. When you're high on, on opioids, you have no cares in the world. It's not just a pain anesthetic. It's a spiritual anesthetic. It spiritually numbs you. Imagine all of your problems melting worries about your next rent check or employment or what's going on and you're just melting away. You just feel wonderful. And while that's happening, it's reorganizing your body to 
crave that feeling and need it. Otherwise you go into withdrawal. So that's something hard to beat, right? And so when you're looking at the problems in America between the despair of the coronavirus and the social isolation, employment problems, like the deaths of despair that we often talk about, opioids, whether it's heroin or fentanyl, are uniquely positioned to to be a salve for that. And there's no easy way to get that to go away. And the other problem is once enough people are addicted to opioids, the the social ecology starts to change to, to to maintain and cultivate that, right? You start introducing them to your friends, you bring dealers into your community to keep you supplied. Instead of going out to the movies, you convince your new boyfriend or girlfriend, let's just stay home and try this a few times, right? So like once things get a foothold, not only is this this very potent drug that makes a lot of your despair and social problems just melt away in ecstasy and euphoria, but you start reorganizing the world around. So I think that's the challenge. We could evidently talk about opioid abuse for uh, for an hour or more, but I want to shift back to maybe a more general policing topic. Working with a lot of police departments personally, and the number one hot button issue, at least for the ones that I'm talking with, is always around capacity. It's around hiring. It's around, hey, the job has just sucked a lot more in the past few years than it has previously. And as a result, we're, we're finding it difficult to attract good staff, just like every company is at this point in time. Because policing is such a difficult role and, and capacity is so stretched. Do you ever feel that, and, and maybe you've had personal experience here, maybe not, that departments are pressured to accept candidates or overlook internal indiscretions just simply due to the sheer lack of man or woman power out there available? We're seeing right now in policing a move in a lot of cities to do away with what were modest educational requirements. And I think it's it's a bad bellwether for policing. And that's just to keep the staffing up. And we're hearing a lot of rationalizations, you know, oh, and some of it's true. Listen, if you were a construction worker being at the construction site six in the morning, working through all types of weather, being a consistent hard worker, you'll probably make a pretty good cop, right? But that's the the, the aspiration for the best case scenario of eliminating educational requirements. Ultimately, we want police to be professionals. We want them to have an ability to understand evidence and use evidence to inform their work. We want them to be intellectually open-minded about different approaches to solving crime, not just handcuffs and, and billy clubs, but also you know behavioral health interventions. And all of these things benefit from education. So there is a huge staffing crisis in policing. No matter how disinterested you are in policing, if you just want it as a quote-unquote nine-to-five job, it's still the type of job that becomes an identity. It's the type of job that sets you apart for who you are. We look at police differently. We think different things about them. We see them as a different type of person. And then for the last few years, they've been told loud and clear from a lot of points in culture in the media, your identity is terrible and you're a bad person and you're the reason why we have problems in society. Who wants to step into that, especially young people for the first time considering their path through life? So we're at this really dangerous point for public safety where no matter how much you reduce the footprint of policing in the community, it will still be an indispensable part of a good civic life and a good democracy. You could get rid of the police and then tell other people to start doing things to fill that gap. And I guarantee before you know it, they'll be looking and acting like the police. And that's a whole other hour to talk about. But with that need, that need for policing to combine it with it being assailed as a decent identity for a person in a job that will always be an identity. And then combine that with like it, just all sorts of shortcomings in staffing. And then add to that this lowering of the standards where we used to require two years of college or we preferred a bachelor's degree. Now it's a high school diploma. 
it's it's three or three indicators all heading in the wrong direction. And so I do worry about the next decade in policing as a profession. Is policing a somewhat decentralized industry? Or when you're saying that seems like the standards are going one way or the other, is there a central governing body maybe that's publicly visible or not that is ultimately, I guess, directing the winds of policing across the entire country? No, no. Listen, I mean, Jack. To the to the problem with policing is how shape shifting it can be. I used to say that police conservatives, literally and professionally, don't want to change. They conquer by dividing, right? So when a police officer is killed in the line of duty doing something sacrificial and heroic, which is you know happens all the time in policing, it's a unified brother and sisterhood. It's we're all cops. That's the thin blue line. You'll have a funeral for a slain officer and cops will come from everywhere and say an attack on one of us is an attack on all of us. And that's true. And that's one of the things that's absolutely wonderful about the profession is that no matter where you are, you could be a cop struggling at the roadside by yourself at two in the morning on Interstate 95 in North Carolina and a cop driving to Panama City for vacation miles away from thousands of miles away from their home will see you and say that's an attack on 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 a brother or sister i'm going to get out and help i wish more of america had that type of brother and sisterhood but when it comes to the difficult parts of cultural change the difficult parts of institutional change that unity conquers by dividing and says, no, 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 there are 18,000 different police departments. We all have separate union agreements. We all have separate cultures. We all have separate rules, separate traditions. Just because this terrible thing happened in Minneapolis doesn't mean that I should change. I'm over here in Boston or I'm over here in Baltimore. And I think that like, that's worn a little thin, right? We can't just say policing is a unified monolithic, values-driven, amazing brother and sisterhood for all of the positives and the heroism and the sacrifice. But when it comes to cultural change and uniform standards and reporting indiscretions throughout other people's hiring processes, cops move from, we can't say, no, 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 it's 18,000 fiefdoms that can never be connected. It's, it's, you could tell by my tone, I think that's worn thin and, and people have seen it. And so Policing is centralized when it wants to be and decentralized when it feels it needs to be. And yet I think we have to move towards centralization. It's a profession. Professions have uniform standards. This is a a two-part question and you can address one or both points. Uh, To the first point, if you could, let's say, snap your finger and overnight make every police department, sheriff's office across the US change in one very specific way. Maybe it's all carte blanche wearing body cams. Who knows? What would that one thing be? And as a part two, are there specific potentially countries, potentially states, specific cities uh, across the world that you believe are the gold standard for policing? Yeah, listen, I, I'm interviewing cops for police leaders for a project I'm doing. And I asked them, I felt like you hacked into my computer because I asked them the same interview question about the thing they could do if they could do anything. So number one is an aside. I'll let it go with this. Like there should be a policy that you don't shoot at cars unless the car, unless someone, like if someone in the car is shooting a gun at you, you could shoot back at the gun person, the gunman. But shooting at the NYPD banned shooting at cars in the early 70s. It did not result in more cops injured, but police shootings in New York went down 40%. So that's like a just a little side policy thing. There's a lot of things I'd want to standardize, but to bring to your attention one thing that's a little bit out of the box, because there's a lot of pat answers I could give you, I'd want to hire cops based on their desire to be sociable. The best connections I made with people were when I was a, 
a precinct commander or a chief. And I had the freedom to say, my God, I can get out of this police car for the next hour, just talking to people. I learned so much about the problems in the community, so much about who to focus on as a potential, you know, public safety threat, so much about what people cared about, so much about how we could solve certain problems creatively or what the real value of solving a particular problem was. Oh, you know, you're here to talk about the um, the graffiti, but it's really this other behavior that we really care about. I got all of that just by talking to people. And I realized that like when I was bringing my dry cleaning from the dry cleaner to my car and I was chief and everyone recognized me, it took 45 minutes to walk a few hundred feet because I was engaging in these really fruitful conversations with citizens about public safety and our civic life. And I would love it if we cultivated police forces where the officers said, I can't believe that when I have nothing to do, because right now, if you have nothing to do, you're on your smartphone, texting someone, playing games, maybe I'm going to pull over a bunch of cars and see if there's a kilo in one of those cars. I would love the cops. I cannot believe that I am getting paid to get out of this car and just talk to people for an hour. Like that's, I'm getting a pension in healthcare for doing that. I think that that cultivating that type of police officer throughout America and giving them the physical fitness and skills and, you know, ability to be a good cop in all the ways, but that they were like inherently sociable, that would change the face of American policing. If I could just make it happen. As far as a police department, that's the gold standard, which you'd asked. I have to say that the New York City Police Department is still to this day, like a phenomenal, phenomenal agency. The thing about it is that as an agency with 37,000 officers, 50,000 employees, and the NYPD has systematically done some pretty indefensible things, but pound for pound, it's the most thoughtful, professional, highly developed, driven and caring police department in the world. I remember being in a CompStat meeting where uh, we were watching surveillance video of a crack dealer getting shot at, African-American guy outside of a housing project in Upper Manhattan. And the police commissioner pounded his fist on the table and looked at that kid in the video and said, he almost died that night. What is this police department going to do to make sure that he doesn't die and to make sure that he's safe? I don't think anywhere else in the world that I know of, there are many places where a police department is focusing its entire might in a meeting on what it will take to do to keep crack dealer alive in uh, a situation where other drug dealers are shooting it out with him. Like that's the level of concern that they had about, you know, the full range of people, a full range of communities. Like, and it really left an impression on me that that was happening. And, and there was, a, it wasn't rhetorical. The press wasn't there. Other folks weren't there. No one was going to hear about this except me telling it in a podcast years later, but looking at this guy getting shot at and dodging bullets as he was dealing drugs in front of a housing project and the police department saying, our mission is to keep that man alive. That left an impression on me. I think that's a great police department. And and speaking of changing the face of policing, obviously uh, the rise of social media and, and really specifically of uh, the accessibility of videography at any point in time has, has obviously changed the game as well. You know, it's possible to take a two minute clip and spin any number of narratives following from those. However, on the flip side, it can also be a, a much needed a harbinger of accountability in, in some more, to your earlier point, opaque departments. Do you have any thoughts on a general sense in terms of what the right balance might be between those two factors? Social media is a great way to collect evidence. It's also like a disease. I mean, you're talking about two things at once, the ability to collect and transmit evidence around the world and memorialize it. That's great for police accountability. When I looked at my first smartphone, not smartphone, my first flip phone back in the 90s, 
where I was saying like, my God, this thing has a camera. I said, this is going to cause a bloodletting in policing one day because there's cops doing things that we that, that they, they don't want the world to see. They're too heavy handed. They're too brutal. And sure enough, we've gotten that, right? And it's been good. But there's also this way that social media just like in a raw way exploits people's emotions to like drive them to the brink and aggravate them and, and, and just consolidate whatever biases and positions they've eked out for themselves. There are two separate questions, right? We want all of the accountability and transparency of being able to capture things and broadcast them. But social media companies are up late at night figuring out how do we turn these things, these our platforms into these very addictive, emotionally, they want to provoke emotions. That's how they get the clicks. And that is a terrible problem. I think we're headed to a bad place. And I don't have the answer for that. But there's this like irreconcilable tension at this point between the good of social media and the way it just totally brings out the worst in people and then encourages other people to act badly in response. If the, this is a pretty short question, if the right role arose, would you return to the field? And, and if so, why? And, and if not, why not? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I'm, I'm being recruited even now by certain pretty good, respectable cities to be a chief of police. I think there's a Part of it is just the leadership vacuum. I could have told you 10 years ago who the up and coming and present leaders in policing were. And now I'm still plugged into that. And I can't tell you more than one or two who those leaders are, because I think it's a very, very, very difficult position. So to evade the question, but answer it indirectly, I want to stay involved in policing. I want to stay involved in a leadership role. And I want to stay involved in a role that influences police practice. But I'm not entirely convinced that that is from wearing a uniform with stars on your collar. I think for the next few years, those will be some of the most frustrating places to be. I think the changes you can make in those cases are sort of limited. But I'm weighing, I'm working that out right now. We clearly need innovation and reform in public safety. We clearly need police leadership. But I'm really enjoying being a a policy person and researcher. And every time my phone rings and it's a reporter saying, what kind of story should I write about this topic? Or... It's um, a government agency saying, I want to I want to use some evidence that you've showcased to change our practice. I'm like, hey, that's pretty cool, too. I don't know. The verdict's out, Jack. Well, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. And and unfortunately, just based on time, we have to come to the, the final closing question. So I'll ask it pretty bluntly. What is, and it may tie in from some of your answers previously, but what's one accepted truth of policing that you hold to be incorrect? One... I'll try to think of two. I'll buy time with one. Is it anyone who gets within 21 feet of you with a knife, you should probably shoot because they can stab you faster than you can react. The 21 foot rule. That is uh, just, it's just a falsity that's cost a lot of lives. But as far as a trope, I mean, I think there's this like, are you talking about within policing or, or, or the public perception of policing? Maybe within policing. Yeah. I think there's this idea that there's this vein of wisdom in American policing that comes from like the cops of the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s aughts who like walked the beat, did their time, made the arrests, worked in the 90s when crime was high. And they they had this vein of wisdom about what it was like to be like a tough street cop and a quote unquote crime fighter. And that like you have to just aspire to somehow through osmosis or copying or watching or putting the time in, like get that wisdom too. You know, if you think about the uh, the old school NYPD cop twirling his baton, he said, kid, I was there in the 90s. You know, we used to idolize those folks and say the only crime fighting is the crime fighting that they've developed. They had some pretty good tactics about, you know, um, catching criminals, but that is not the only way to 
produce public safety, right? There's so many other ways to complement it, whether it's behavioral health interventions, linking people to treatment, getting them services, finding out not only who done it, but taking three or four steps back about why it's happening and why they done it. Like that's true too. And for policing to get away from its focus on the archetypal gristled crime fighter and understanding its role as a collaborator and using like a lot of interventions to produce public safety, we've got to get towards that. And I think, you know, a lot of European police departments and, and in some places in America, they're beginning to understand that, but we need to accelerate that cultural shift. Right. When I was young, I wanted to be the, the, the square jawed, you know, like crime fighter. And that's the culture I came up in. And I got to do that for a bit. But but now as a person in his late 40s, I see policing has a lot more nuance and, 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 and we need to we need to cultivate that. Fantastic answer. I wish I really do wish we could have gone on much longer as this was a true breath of fresh air and a massive dose of impartiality in a sector and a conversation that unfortunately usually only draws out the most extreme of opinions. So really enjoyed the conversation, Chief. I will still call you Chief against your wishes and urge all (laughs) listeners to, to keep an eye on your work and thought leadership as your perspective continues to evolve. Many thanks. Yeah, no, my pleasure. It's me again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and connect with me on LinkedIn. See you soon.